Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans appear. 20,000. Agricultural revolution. Industrial revolution. 60. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, the program where we ask the question, what does it mean to be living in the new geologic age? I'm your host, Mike Osborne, and today's interview is with Penn State professor Richard Alley. Stay tuned. I'm Jeremy Caves, and I'm here with Dr. Richard Alley, who's a professor in the Department of Geosciences at Pennsylvania State University. He was also a participant in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, and he was also a presenter in a PBS documentary called Earth the Operator's Manual that was just recently produced about Earth's energy mix, renewable energy, and fossil fuels. So welcome, Dr. Alley, to our studio. Well, thank you, Jeremy. It's a pleasure to see you again. Thanks. So... I'd like to start off this interview by talking about perhaps what you're most famous for, at least in the scientific community, which is your work on the polar ice sheets, particularly Greenland, and your work on ice cores and abrupt climate change. And I know you've spent a lot of time on the Greenland ice sheet and and a lot of our polar ice caps. And I just want to know, what's it like to work on the ice for long periods of time and pull out kilometer-long ice cores? Yeah. It's it's fantastic. It's very different world. Um, I had a friend who loves really high mountains and rock climbing and so on who said it's the most intrinsically boring place on Earth because there's snowdrifts and then there's an ice sheet and there's not much else in between. But the sky is gloriously beautiful. The snow is beautiful. And you're sitting on two miles of ice with a history of the climate that is just incomparable. And you're just sitting there saying, look, more history coming up. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that. Oh, wow. You know, so it is just an absolutely outstanding undertaking. And how do you pull up these cores? I mean, what's the actual process for pulling them out of the ice sheet? Where's, do you have a laboratory on the ice sheet? You hang around with really good people who know what they're doing. But if you have ever seen anyone put a, a 
doorknob in a in a door. You have to drill a hole through and you pull out a circle of wood and then you can use that space for something else. Um, and they do it with a, a pipe with teeth on the end that you spin on a drill. Essentially, that's what an ice core drill is, is that you've got a pipe with teeth on the end that you spin, but it's serious high tech because you're going two miles down eventually and you're pulling up this ice and you're trying not to break it and you've got a fluid in the hole to keep the hole from collapsing and you have to have something to keep the drill from spinning in the in the hole when when you're cutting into the ice and so it's a it's a big undertaking when we did the the first big project I was on in Greenland we actually had this secret under snow laboratory and we did most of the work up there so one of the big things you and others have discovered from these ice cores has been that the Earth can undergo these incredibly dramatic shifts in climate, what, what people have termed abrupt climate change. What was it like when you first discovered that Earth can undergo these abrupt changes in climate? Yeah, a little exhilarating and really scary. So we went after these these ice cores in Greenland in part because there were a number of records from other parts of the world that were pointing towards fast changes. And for various reasons, we were fairly confident that the ice cores in Greenland would give us a better view of this than anything else. And so we're up there in Greenland and we're looking at these layers going by in the ice and summer snow and winter snow look different uh, for men they're chemically different and isotopically different and electrically different and so we're making these measurements and you're sitting there going down through time as we drill down and this thick and this thick and this thick and then whoop in just about three years the layers are only half as thick and the world changed and it changed really fast. And then as we went deeper, we find lots of these events. And when the snowfall changed, we now know that the dust changed and the methane changed and the isotopes changed and a whole bunch of other things changed. And these include indicators of climate in Greenland and climate way upwind of Greenland, things like dust blowing over from, from Asia, and in really widespread areas. So the methane in the ice core is produced in the tropics, is produced in the high latitudes, and there's big changes in the methane that indicate that large parts of the Earth's surface changed. They're all in the same record. So you can sit there with this one ice core and say, wow, most of the world saw a big jump in its climate right here. So you can actually visually see this change. You don't even need to go back to the laboratory to see that the Earth underwent some big changes in climate. Yep. So the first part of it, you really could see in the core right there in front of you. Now, eventually the methane, we can't see the change in methane. So for that, you need the laboratory. But ultimately, you put the whole thing together and it's very clear that the Earth system has switches as well as dials. You turn the sun, you turn the orbit, you turn a CO2, a lot of different things, and the climate responds. And usually it responds in a sane and reasonable and easily predictable manner. A little more sun, a little more CO2, it gets a little warmer. But occasionally something weird happens and it jumps to a new state. If you could go back in time. What would these abrupt climate changes look like? Are they all the same? Would they have made the Earth a lot colder, a lot windier, or a lot warmer, uh, more rainy? If you were living on the Earth back 
uh, what these are several thousand years ago or tens of thousands of years ago, what would the Earth have look like then through yeah. one of these transitions? And it depends on where you lived. So there are not huge changes in the global average temperature. Uh, there's a little change in the methane, um, but not enough time to change the CO2 a lot. And the sun is not changing. And so they're not so much a change in the whole Earth's average temperature as a rearrangement. So it got really, when it got really cold in the north with, um, sea ice spreading far across the North Atlantic and permafrost extending down into the Netherlands and, and, and dust blowing around and all sorts like this. It got dry in the monsoon belts. It actually got warm in the far south because in the modern world, the sun shines in the ocean off of Brazil. That warmed water flows up to Norway in the winter. And Norway doesn't get really, really cold because it's got a little of Brazil's sun keeping it warm in the winter. When that stopped, it left the heat in the south. So cold in the north, warm in the south, uh, dry and windy coming out of Asia, dry in the, the monsoons. Um, almost everyone would have known their climate changed, but with just a rearrangement of what was happening where. So how fast would this have taken? I mean, are we talking several decades or several years or even less than a year for this transition to really cold climates, let's say in Europe? Right. So so the transition into the cold climates was probably more like a century and the transition out was probably more like a decade. Uh, we like to say order of. So 10 years is a better estimate than one or a hundred, but it would be some things were really fast, some things respond slower. And so you'd have to be very careful to actually pick a number of years, but think order of a decade, 10 years. And so when you look at the record in the ice core, would you have seen any way to predict these changes coming? I mean, is there some evidence prior to when this abrupt climate change happens that you say, okay, it looks like this is going to happen and boom, there it is. And then you're coming out of it. Or are these completely unpredictable in the ice core that you pulled up? We've tried really hard to find a, a, a forewarning. And some people said, well, maybe they're seeing something happen in the variability kick up a little bit. But overall, I don't think we have a predictive ability at this point that you can take part of the record and say it's about to happen. Look, there it is. I don't think we've got that. Wow. So this this almost seems like, in my mind, rather frightening stuff, right? I mean, here's a here's a evidence that the Earth can undergo some really dramatic, really fast changes, um, the severity of which and the timing of which are pretty much unpredictable. Is that is that generally right? That is certainly what happened. And when we found this, uh, I'll be honest, a lot of us were really scared. You looked at this and said, okay, we think we understand that the cold times in, around Europe, which went with dry times in the monsoon where a whole lot of people live, happened when a lot of melting in the north was freshening the North Atlantic. And then we looked at the modern and we said, well, we're causing a lot of melting in the north, which is freshening the North Atlantic. And we were scared. Um, I think now that our understanding is while we're pushing in the direction of such a problem, we're not pushing hard enough and fast enough. So the, if you just take the sign, are we going towards or away from problem? Towards. 
are we going fast enough that it's going to get us? Probably not. The last IPCC said 90% confidence that we won't do something like this big and fast in the next 100 years. But 90% is not 100%. So what would one of these, if one of these happened today, would it look like something that happened in the Greenland Ice Core? Or would it be actually dramatically different since we live in uh, a fairly warm world and we have CO2 is rising relatively fast? Would it look like one of these transitions yeah. in the ice core? And I don't think we even know. Um, but presumably, if we made the North Atlantic fresh enough to freeze in the winter before we made it so hot that it couldn't freeze in the winter, presumably it gets hard to play soccer on Boxing Day in England. Um, and the question of whether it really does dry out the monsoon belts is, the, I think, the real worry. Um, there was one possible analog about 8,200 years ago. Uh, the ice sheet in Canada is melting away. It has a big lake sitting up against it. That lake drains out into the North Atlantic. The North Atlantic got cold for a little while, and it does look like it dried out in places where a lot of people live. And so if one of these were to happen, it's probably not a good thing. So you did an, an interview in, um, in 2004 with NPR where you said that the, uh, I think the interview asked you specifically, do you think climate change is our biggest problem facing us today? And the answer you gave was, no, there are other problems that are perhaps bigger. And now that we've talked a bit about abrupt climate change, and you've said there's a 90% chance this isn't going to happen, would you still say that climate change isn't the biggest problem that's facing society or humanity, or is it is it something else? Yeah. So I still think that our biggest problem is getting along with each other. It is so much easier to break things than it is to build them. And if we start breaking everything, we can do so much damage. But getting along with each other is going to be related directly and immediately to climate change because it's it's absolutely illegal for me to relieve myself in your front yard. But right now, it is legal for me to have the exhaust of my car change your climate. And so there are real cross-border issues here. Right now, the people who are contributing most to climate change and the people who are most vulnerable to being hurt by climate change are different people. The people contributing most tend to be fairly wealthy people in fairly cold places, and the people who are most vulnerable tend to be fairly poor people in fairly warm places. And so there really is an issue that you, you – I mean, I'm over-dramatizing, but the idea that I can't take a dump in your front yard, but I can change your climate is, is worth thinking about. This topic specifically is actually what you're – recent documentary, Earth the Operator's Manual, is about the options of what, whether we can continue burning fossil fuels or whether we sh how we can switch to renewable energy. But you come across in that documentary as, as very optimistic about our ability to change to a largely renewable energy mix. What makes you so optimistic that we can do this? Yeah, so some of it is history. There's these wonderful stories of people facing the energy crises of the past and finding ways out of them. So Cape Cod, when the settlers, European settlers got to Cape Cod, it was goodly wooded down to the shore. And by the late 1600s, the town of East Ham was actually outlawing private people cutting trees on their own land because the trees 
were going away, and this had all sorts of impacts. And partly the trees went away because they were using the wood to boil seawater to make salt to pack the cod in so they could export it to the old country for trade goods. And they had to start importing salt, and it was hurting the economy, and it was hurting the export because they ran out of trees. There's no energy. And what did they do? They switched to a wind-sun system. They switched to windmills and solar dryers, and all of a sudden they were an exporter of salt. So you had an economy that was living and working on renewable energy in the 1700s is when they got to that far. And so this is not something that requires vast new discoveries and breakthroughs and and unimagined things. What we're talking about in a sustainable energy future involves technologies that have worked for centuries and that we know that they work. It's not developing the thing that no one has dreamed of yet. It's building the things that worked 100 years ago but doing it better. It's it's interesting to hear you answer this question. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. It's, the technology is definitely there. And the optimism is really fantastic. And yet at the same time, we hear this uh, really alarmist rhetoric about climate change. You know, if we don't do something, we're all going to get wiped out. Society is going to face devastating consequences. Um, th- is this alarmist rhetoric justified in terms of if we can switch our economy to a a renewable energy source? One thing which is very clear is that the costs go up faster than the temperature. So a little bit of warming, if you're rearing endangered species living in a national park surrounded by cornfields and parking lots, you're in trouble pretty fast because you need to migrate and you can't get there. If you're worried about poor people in hot places and um, people trying to live a traditional lifestyle, a little more warming and they start to have a lot of troubles. The global average economy, probably it takes a few degrees before it gets itself in trouble. And the more you turn up the temperature, the faster the costs rise. The second degree costs more than the first. The third degree costs more than the second. And so in some sense, no matter when we decide to do something about this, we benefit. What the science says is that this is not, at least not yet, screaming, hairy panic, conniption fit, let's run for the hills tearing our hair out. This is, we are better off if we include the scientific knowledge in our decision making. And then you say, well, wait a minute, but what about the uncertainties? And be very clear, we might have overestimated the dangers and and underestimated the costs, and it may be that doing less about this is a better thing. That's possible. And it may be that we've underestimated the dangers and overestimated the costs, and doing more about it is a better thing. But lurking out there is a huge abrupt climate change or an ice sheet collapse or an ecosystem collapse or making it so hot that that unprotected humans have troubles living in the tropics. And we don't see the balance on the other side of that. We can't see any way that just cranking up CO2 like crazy turns Earth into Eden, but we can see at least slight possibilities of really big troubles. And so this is now a communications problem. Do we emphasize the slight chance of huge disasters? Do we stay in the most likely outcome, which is on the optimistic end? Right now, you, I think you see a lot of argument in some places between the most likely, the scientifically preferred answer, and fairly optimistic views. 
And then there are people out there saying, ah, panic. Um, but those are all within the realm of possibilities. So this, it sounds like this really comes down to, uh, in a sense, prediction. If if we're going to talk about how it impacts economies or or energy or, or national security, we need to be able to make good predictions about where climate change may be taking us. Yes, or good projections. We we like to do this careful wording. A prediction implies that we know what humans are going to do as well as how climate will respond. And our goal is to say, if humans do X, here's your climate. If humans do Y, here's your climate. If humans do Z, here's your climate. Now, you can choose X, Y, or Z because you know what it means. And so we call these projections because we can't predict humans, so we can't predict climate. Because if we look out to the time that current students on average are my age, probably the most important issues become the decisions that we make about what we're going to do. Nature has natural variability, no question about that. There are things we don't know about the climate system, but eventually the biggest uncertainties are what will we choose to do. When people talk about the Anthropocene, they often talk about how the Earth is at a tipping point. And you can name a whole slew of, of different factors where the Earth seems to be reaching a tipping point, whether it's atmospheric levels of CO2, whether it's how humans have dominated the nitrogen cycle. And just to sort of start off this line of questioning, is a tipping point the same as abrupt climate change? In the very broadest sense, I think we use them more or less the same way. When we, I worked with the National Academy of Sciences and National Research Council on a report on abrupt climate change, and we tried very hard to come up with useful definitions. What are we talking about? And we ended up with two of them. One was one that might be a physical one, which is it's changing faster than the cost. You push a little bit and it flips faster. There's a tipping point. The other one was something that was happening so fast that ecosystems or economies had troubles dealing with it. And that's a very, very different thing, which might have flipping tipping points in ecosystems or economies, even if the climate is responding in a, in a nice, well-behaved manner. And so I think that we see there really are tipping points in the, in the Earth system or abrupt climate changes in the sense that you push a little bit and not much happens, and you push a little more, and suddenly you get a, get a shift to something else, which is much faster than the cause. And, and also, it seems in discussion of tipping points that there's this avoidance of discussion of values. That is, you know, what, what are we really aiming for here in society? Are we aiming to preserve our climate like it's been over the past several thousand years? Are we aiming to preserve biodiversity? Are we aiming to, to improve quality of life? You know, when we talk about tipping points, what sort of values are we talking about? Or is this, is this something that just really hasn't been discussed in either the National Academies or on the policy scene or among scientists? Yeah, I think you'll find that the scientists talk about it a lot when they're not testifying um, because we're people too and we have values and we care. And I think that you will find when the camera is off, the microphone is off, that there's probably more discussion of value going on out there than you might recognize. And is, is this something that scientists ought to be talking about as well? I mean, I know you, you try and avoid 
laying out policy prescriptions, but lay out what are the possible options. But that's almost different than saying, you know, here's the science. And as also as a, a citizen of the United States of the world, these are some of the values I hold. Uh, and this is how I'm interpreting my science as well um, and presenting it to, let's say, policymakers or community leaders. This is a very hard one because as scientists, I'm a person. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a member of a church. Uh, and those things mean a lot to me. Um, in the same sense, when I go to advise the National Academy, we have this little disclosure. And if I have taken strongly held public positions, that doesn't disqualify me from, from providing advice, but it's a consideration because we all sort of know that as humans, once we've gone out on the limb and said, this is what I believe, this is what we have to do, people worry about whether that public statement is now going to color what I do and how I evaluate the science. And so it's a, it's a fairly careful path that we as scientists have to walk to be absolutely honest with everyone. As a scientist, I am trying my best to find out what's out there. But I'm a person and I am not a machine and I am not a way to truth. And no scientist speaks for science. This is something that is really really important actually. Um, if you know the name of a scientist, the topic that you know the scientist related to, when you know their name, the scientist doesn't matter. So if you could go back today and erase Einstein from the history books, you would do terrible disservice to history, but you would not change our understanding of relativity and you would not change the fact that your GPS, which uses relativity, knows where it is. Because at the point where people give an award to Einstein, his work has been tested by so many people in so many ways and woven into something that's so much bigger that Einstein doesn't matter. And if you made Darwin go away, it has absolutely no influence whatsoever on our understanding of evolution. And if you pick any climate scientist that you can name who might have been yelled about in the blogosphere and erase them, it doesn't matter. Because when we come forward to policymakers, when we come forward to the public and say, this is what we understand, it has been tested in enough different ways that no data set, no country, no lab, no individual actually matters anymore. If you want to know, is it getting warmer? The thermometers show warming. Then what, you know, as an, as an earth scientist, what, real, what drives you to continue studying the earth to testify before Congress, um, especially in light of that past answer? You know, what, what's... What really motivates you to study these sorts of systems? Yeah, so some of it is a little selfish. It's fun. I'm sorry. It's really cool. You, you know, a bunch of students go to the field and, and they come back and they say, look what we found. And you say, wow, we didn't know that. And eventually that's going to help because ultimately the world was sort of full of hunter-gatherers with a few million people. And now there's a few billion of us and we can see a way to a sustainable future. We can see a way to keeping everybody fed and clothed and housed and healthy and so on if we use our knowledge. 
and we can see a way to break this and cause all kinds of terrible things. But science really does give us the tools to get – to allow us to go where we want to go. And I believe in that deeply and passionately. Well, thank you, Dr. Ali, for coming to the studio today. And thank you, Jeremy. Thank you to the, the Anthropocene team. This is just fascinating. Thanks for listening to this episode of Generation Anthropocene. We want to thank co-producers Tom Hayden and Miles Traer for all their behind-the-scenes work, as well as Leslie Chang, Maxine Luckett, and Sam Larson. Special thanks to Pam Madsen, Dean of Stanford School of Earth Sciences. A very special thanks to Maserati for letting us use their song, Monoliths. Thanks also to KZSU Stanford 90.1, where all of our interviews were recorded. You can find past episodes of Generation Anthropocene at anthropocene.stanford.edu, follow us on Twitter, or like us on Facebook. History is accelerating, and you're a part of it too. Where would you draw the line?